Hey, welcome to another episode of the Progression Podcast. I've been busy lining up more great guests for the pod, but I also want to keep chatting with regular contributors about the important topics of the day and tech careers. So I'm excited to have Austin back on the pod to chat through my product and our thoughts around HR tools, SaaS fatigue, and establishing true meritocracy in the hiring process. We'll be tackling more of the bigger questions around design in future episodes, so do let us know if there's something you'd like us to chat about. Some housekeeping. Uh, This is the first podcast where I'm happy with my sound, but we're still getting there with audio quality. Thanks for being patient. We'll get there in the end. Also, I'm in India for the next three weeks, so I may pause until the middle of November. Do hit me on Twitter or Slack with feedback and ideas, though. There's going to be loads more when I'm back. Okay, that's it. On with the pod. Hi, Austin. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) Completely natural intro. Fantastic. Cool. What's up? Hanging out. Off to India in uh, a week. So I'm rounding off some pilots for the progression pack stuff next week and then heading off and then I'll come back all zen and um, full of pictures of elephants and kicking off some more pilots when I get back. That's how, so how are you doing the, the pilot programs? How's that working so far? Yeah, I've got a couple of companies who are going through pilot at the moment. And the, really the format is they get all the materials, all the progression pack materials, uh, so much of the documentation at the very least. And quite often, quite a lot of the product isn't written yet or hasn't been written when they've started. So there's a lot of concierge. Um, so they get yeah. a bunch of me on site and on the other end of Slack to help them kind of go through the process. But we're really, it's interesting because we're really getting to the, the meat of it now. Um, this is, Progression Pack is not something that you just kind of buy and install. It, it yeah. requires organizational change to actually make it work. So you have to, right. you have to have some guts to, um, to want to do it and to roll it out and to make it work over time and to have all the hard conversations that you might need to have as part of re-leveling parts of your team or deciding their fate in some ways. So I'm kind of watching, I'm right in the middle of watching teams make those initial adjustments and go through that kind of assessment process. And um, l- very luckily, both companies, the the managers the, the kind of design leaders there are, are brave and excited about doing it in the open and um, they want their teams to be able to see each other's skills and things like that. So it's really the perfect couple of teams to be working with first up. And they're also very forgiving of me not having everything <laughs> ready to go and there being yeah. some sellotape involved in the whole process right now, which is fantastic for me because if I had to build all the things, then it would probably be february or march next year before i could really start testing and i don't have that kind of time sure sure i mean they that's got to be pretty fascinating to see because i mean i guess the the whole kind of central point of this is you're making progression matrices more dynamic because at the moment they're quite static if i understand correctly so to see a company or kind of a silo or section of a company go from static to dynamic um, yeah, there's gotta be some like pretty fundamental change and how they approach 
yeah, so, their processes and their people, which I mean, that's got to be pretty interesting. Have you learned anything uh, along the way? I mean, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to steer the conversation in any particular direction, but I, I'm curious. Yeah, I've learned a huge amount. Um, so there's some some data knocking about um, this chap Todd Zaki Warfel, who is an American coach and design leader, has done this big survey in the states, and mm-hmm. I'm going to get the numbers a little bit wrong, but broadly you know, order of magnitude, they're correct. Something like 70 or 80% of companies, of design teams specifically, and this isn't just in tech, this is across design teams and, you know, all sorts of different types of companies, ages of companies, government, stuff like that. But 70 to 80% don't have any kind of public, even static framework for designers to be able to understand what skills they have and how they relate to their roles. And then there's another Mm -hmm. 20-something percent or, or maybe even less that do have that, and and it is a sta- the equivalent of a spreadsheet, um, or, yeah. or a you know Google Doc or, or whatever the thing is, whatever the format is, and then it's a very small percentage, one percent or two, that have something that's interactive, and it's and you can understand why because the, and I can tell you from experience now that the cost of building something like that is hugely <laughs> high, um, not just right. to write the content, which is months. I mean, it's taken me. Yeah, two months to write all the small, uh, intricate parts of this. And that's the first draft, and it'll keep evolving over months and years. Um, So there's that, and that's even just to get to the static. That's the kind of 20 to 30% of people. Um, Right. And uh, I suppose I've I've written it to a level of depth that probably most haven't, but um, that's painful enough. But then really wrapping that in, whether it's a UI or, or process that allows everyone in your team to understand not just the level that you're at and the level above you but how close you are to the level above and whether you're actually performing well at the level you're currently um, at and then uh, seeing that progress over time and, and watching your own growth and then obviously for a manager if you're looking at that in aggregate across your team then you've got hugely powerful data to be able to tell not just who's performing well and who's not performing well or who's growing fast and who isn't but where the holes are in your skill set as a team and what your next hire should be and whether you are able to support new engineering teams or new parts of the product that are spinning up that maybe require a certain skill set. So there's loads of stuff that comes out of it, but it's really complicated to build and really way too much. Uh, the biggest product teams in the world have this kind of stuff. So, you know, your, your Google, right. Google, Amazon, Facebook, uh, Apple, what's the last one? Microsoft. They, they will all have them and the, the big the IBMs of the world will probably have them. But if you're a 10-person design team or even a 50-person design team, it's hard to justify the cost of building something that is internal, especially yeah. when you can't really measure the impact of not having it. Uh, but even though it's well known to be very hard to hire new designers and new researchers and new content writers and new engineers for sure. And the cost of losing someone is 30, 40% of their salary, you know, between them winding down an empty chair, someone else learning on the job. And then um, obviously that kind of knowledge that's lost, but yeah, so the the costs are huge, but you can kind of get away with not having it and no one will, no one will fire you for not having it, but you'll start, losing designers and you'll start having people becoming less focused and less productive in their work and generally you 
your employer brand will probably take a hit because it won't feel like a place that people can grow. Yeah, and and the what I had a thought as you were speaking. Um, you mentioned some of the companies that you know do this well, the the Google, Amazon, Facebook, or I mean I don't know how well they do it, but uh, they have some infrastructure for this. But obviously, those are closed systems that are very protective of their people, and rightfully so. Um, you know, due to kind of the cost of losing them, um, and just kind of the you know, the fact that there is scarcity with some of these skills. So I think it's really fascinating that there's an opportunity there to uh, to empower designers as individuals to understand where they're at, kind of across different roles and even potentially across companies. I, from the outset, I think that's one of the most fascinating things is that this is not necessarily, uh, well, I don't know yet, but it... it I think at the moment it's probably company centric, um, but the fact that you're rolling this out across multiple companies, it, it, I mean, is there an opportunity for designers to kind of track their progress across companies? Mm. So say they take a new role in another company. Um, how does that look like, or is that an option or is that on the roadmap yeah. or have you thought about that I mean, it, it, at all? Or what, what do you think? It's the ultimate dream, actually. It's, uh, I would love to be able to say that, you know, there's this classic uh, CV error that designers make where they put the their skills on their CV in kind of bar charts and say, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a 10 out of 10 in Photoshop, whatever that means. Yeah. And and it doesn't make any sense, obviously. And, and uh, people on hiring panels look at that and they kind of dismiss people who, who do that out of hand. But those people are trying to express something they just aren't right. able to express or if, in fact nobody knows the ends of the scale so right really what i would love to be able to say is i have defined the ends of the scale so that actually it becomes meaningful to be able to say i'm not not so much tools not so much photoshop you know sketch etc cetera, etc cetera. um yeah because that isn't actually really very meaningful that doesn't describe an outcome that describes an output but on a more outcome level um it would be great for there to be some, I suppose, shared opinion about what good looks like across all of these different yeah. skills so that then you can be judged fairly. Uh, you can be judged objectively, whoever you are and, and whichever kind of a team you're in or, or wherever you are in the world. And not only is that kind of interesting, uh, it's interesting to me as a person, I'd love to be able to know where people are strong and weak you know, whether that's geographically or across different companies or whatever. But um, it's also useful for you because as soon as you've assessed your own skill set, then you can do something about it. And and one of the things that I've seen already taking designers through the skills assessments that I've kind of designed as part of this process is this is the first time they're really thinking about any of this stuff. They, they've never really yeah. had a kind of formal designed methodology for assessing their own skills not so much their personality you know there's everyone's done myers-briggs and all this kind of stuff but much more the hard skills of their craft and the soft skills specifically required from them by their workplace um there's really it's it's made doubly hard for designers because the the skill set is so nebulous and there's so many things that you could learn but um definitely and i I, so i I, it's it's a funny thing. I mean, I run this a similar assessment with a lot of my students, I like a design profile exercise. 
uh, it's just a short exercise, but there's kind of this canvas and um, you can kind of plot yourself visually on this canvas uh, and your current skill set. And I actually do it myself just to get some kind of personal perspective on where I'm at. You know, maybe I'll do this each year, a couple times a year. And I find that um, actually the, the, the amount of canvas that I cover is getting smaller because the more that I know, the more that I realize I don't know. And so the canvas is actually like expanding infinitely. Um, and like, which it, so because it's just a subjective measurement of your own right. capabilities. Right, completely. And, and so if you, and in some ways I felt like an expert designer in certain areas. And then I start learning about an area that's completely new to me. Um, like I started to get more into like motion graphic stuff and you're like, Oh, okay. Now I'm an idiot again. <laughs> um, and, and it is kind of, it's really, it's a challenge, but it'd be really interesting if you could put some parameters, if there would be some objective parameters right. where, you know, you could actually say, you know what, I'm comfortable enough with this skill to say that I'm an expert and I'm going to move on to something else where, you know, I feel like a bit like an idiot. Like I, I, I perpetually seek that kind of imposter syndrome, mm. uh, feeling. Um, like when I start to feel like an expert is when I'm like, okay, I'd love to move on, but to know exactly when to move on or when, when you can yeah. confidently say, I'm an expert, I want to learn something new. Where am I at? Like, I think that's, that's pretty fascinating. It, actually. Yeah. It's interesting because it's so cozy being an expert and, and actually, right. um, there's, and the world needs experts and people that just get really good at something and then give that value to the world over time. But um, there are other people that will always yearn for something a bit more, maybe. And I think it's really hard for anyone to know whether they're an expert or or where they stand against right. anyone else without without sharing that data. You know, it's the power of it's the power of the big data or the the aggregated data that will let people totally. know this is where I. Th- think I am and this is where I thought I was but actually it turns out I'm over here or this is what I thought I needed to do learn this prototyping tool for example and yeah um, I keep going back I'm like a stuck record you know um the pressure really maybe five years ago it was to start your dribble profile and and kind of do visual design now it's probably to be able to build interactive prototypes that's what twitter design twitter and and all all of these places kind of ask you to do but actually it might right. not be the thing that you're interested in at all. And, and anything that helps you to kind of realize that and move into something that's more right for you and, and that you will fundamentally be better at is, is, is valuable. Yeah. Totally. And do you find that like the companies that are doing this pilot program, are they, um, how much education, like follow on education do you have to provide uh, to use the thing, like, do you feel like you for a while want to kind of couple the product with, uh, like workshops and kind of mm-hmm. consulting and education? Cause like you said, I mean, you are kind of doing some, like a transformation piece in one way. Like, do you yeah. think there will be an element of these kind of workshops and not, not so much sales, but just kind of onboarding people with the product in a more kind of, I guess, non-scalable, but physical yeah. in-person kind of way until there's kind of th- this critical mass of people who get the product, who get what you're all about, like where the value's at, like what, how, what are you thinking as far as that? And I mean, I don't want to, you know, get into too many of your 
crazy trade secrets. Again, these are just <laughs> no, you know, I'm, I'm... personal curiosities or business plans or anything like that. But whatever you're comfortable sharing, like what kind of split do you see between, okay, the product's going to stand on its own to yeah. actually there's a real opportunity to get FaceTime with really cool companies and see how they change and be a part of that. Yeah. Like, what are you thinking? There's obviously only one of you, but yeah. Well, um, uh, hopefully one day there won't be just one of me. Uh, and I think that that's a good opportunity to think about what skill set to bring in. Because for me personally, the thing that drives me is building some scalable technology um, that mm-hmm. does. I mean, an interesting parallel is the, the sprint book in that you can buy the book and it's like crazy cheap. For £15, you can be running yeah. this supposedly transformative process at your company and saving the company millions of dollars worth of value uh, with, with a $15 book. But actually, there is this huge secondary industry around the sprint book of consultants that will sell you a, a design sprint uh, with two people running it for you or uh, you know all these extra tools that you can use or people taking the methodology from the sprint and turning it into other things that they're then kind of reselling on top. So there's always going to be benefit or there's always going to be an opportunity to consult, but the, the, at the core of my business model has to be, I suppose, a rejection of consulting because the goal of a consultant is to make yourself a dependency so that you can get more hours, more days so that they have to call you when something breaks. And that is the opposite of what I want to do because I I don't want to hang out in offices really. I don't want to I don't want to swap my I don't want to exchange my um, time for money directly. Like I would like to be building a product that helps me earn while I sleep and all those things that you know people in tech companies want to do. So being very yeah. careful not to accidentally wander into a world of consulting where actually the only way that my product works is if I'm there or or someone is there with me. That said, if there's an opportunity for whether it's people within the company or or third parties to consult on top of the product, then that's kind of interesting. And you know, there's there's if you can build advocacy amongst people who are already coaching and consulting and doing leadership training and all that kind of stuff, then that can only be a good thing, I think. Totally. I mean, I, I you know, I love, <laughs> I mean, to, to quote, I mean, I don't want to hang out in offices. Um, <laughs> I do think that's pretty, as, I mean, I, I do think that's a good point. You know, a lot of consultants, I mean, the goal should be to, you know, either provide a tangible deliverable or a tangible change at the business and then leave, right, right. at one point. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that is very rarely the goal, but that, that should be the expressed goal. And yeah, I, I a hundred percent agree. There's, it's very, I think it's very cool to be a part of that change to kind of be that Archimedes lever that someone that, you know, like actually provides the leverage for change, mm. um, you know, with those new, new ideas or with that external perspective. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's, that's it. You're just kind of pushing the boulder to the top of the hill, but eventually, you know, hopefully it starts rolling right. um, without you, you know? And I, I think, um, yeah, it, 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 there, there is an entire kind of aftermarket of people who do really great consulting work who I think are looking for new ideas and new structure. Mm. Um, and I, I think that this is answering a lot of the questions that, you know, people that have companies and people and clients that I've worked with previously, um, 
especially around like how do we assess our team? Uh, in fact, at one client, I was asked to kind of assess their design team, like give a formal assessment. And I wasn't really comfortable with the request for various reasons, but mainly because there wasn't a reference point. Right. Um, and, and it just, it felt, it kind of felt like the boss was saying like, who should I, you know, fire? <laughs> um, and, and I was, and I was kind of like, uh, and I'm more, I'm all about like development and, and that sort of thing. But I think that what was missing is there weren't goalposts, there weren't reference points, you know, it was going to be a subjective kind of, and I was afraid that my personal, like how I interacted with someone was going to influence my assessment because what else are you going off of? Yeah, of course. Right. You know, and, and it's, it's, yeah, I mean, I can look at their, I can observe their work and say, Hey, this is really fantastic work and all that. But I mean, that would take quite some time to really understand how someone works yeah. uh, without a formal framework or to, you know, you can look at their deliverables. There's some assessment that, that is valid that you can do, but, um, but also if I'm teaching that, you know, the big question is how do you, uh, how do you calculate ROI for this education program or whatever? Right. Like, how do you know that they're a better designer afterwards? And at the moment, you're kind of like, well, you know, like they did some amazing work. They learned this, this, and this. You can point to all these topics, but there's no, there's nothing that you can track over time. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's cool. I think, um, I think it is something that can gain momentum in that kind of market of people of consultants and people who go in and help companies or, you know, obviously internally at companies. Yeah. Um, if, I mean, that's the ultimate goal, right? That's what the consultants are trying to do in the first place. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I guess is to, is to actually provide change. Um, have you seen any companies, I know in your very limited kind of pilot programs, have you seen any tangible changes? And uh, I, I don't know how deep you can get into into that since that's kind of the internal machinations yeah. of a company but we're in the second week of october and mm -hmm. i would hope that this time next month then they'll start to be really kind of meaningful changes this is actually a bit of a challenge of the product quite honestly is the changes felt over months and years rather than initially there's maybe a bit of an initial aha moment um in, involved in right. the, the kind of assessment process and in fact the first team I took through the assessment process, we were running it on Google Docs because, you know, hacky and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah. the manager flipped in the Google Forms layout, flipped to the uh, results tab. And in the results tab on Google Forms, you can see kind of pie charts of answers. And there were some kind of multiple choice answers in there and some um, radio buttons and whatnot. And it spat, out, it spat out a bunch of data. And I hadn't even really thought. I was just like, oh, man, I have to use Google Docs because I'm not going to build a form. So this is like my hack. And he switched over to that view and he was like, oh, it's amazing that you get all this data. And it was great. You know, it was a real kind of joyous moment for him and felt like at that point I was adding a lot of value. But at the same time, it added about 10 things to my roadmap. <laughs> so... If I right. need to, if I need to build Google out of the system, then I need to uh, rebuild all of that uh, kind of data viz and and all sorts of stuff. There's, um, there are a few of those kind of moments, but really, yeah, the measurement is going to be hard, and it's going to be like, and that you know, there's not going to be any B variant to test against for most of it. So, for example, 
if you start using progression pack and then a year later only one person has quit uh, and the year before three people have quit, it's very hard to establish whether progression pack was, uh, unless someone clearly states it in their kind of feedback or whatever, um, it's, it right. is kind of hard to measure. And I think that's endemic in all of this work and the reason why I think leaders kind of shy away from writing this stuff is there is inherent risk. You can write it and you can spend days writing this content. You can roll it out to your team and then they might use it for three months and then stop using it. And then you've actually spent more time writing it than they've, than they've spent looking at it. And sure. the risk of that when, you know, there's so much, there's so much else that you could have been doing with that time. Um, I think is enough to put most people off even starting so, um, I mean, totally. I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, do you, I think companies and individuals and rightfully so are kind of apprehensive to add yet another kind of tool to the toolkit. Are you seeing that at all or, or what are your thoughts on that personally? Yes, definitely. I, I'm really interested in the subject of, I suppose, SAS fatigue, um, and, <laughs> yeah, okay. and especially, like that especially the kind of HR driven centralized SaaS products like, well, I'm not, maybe I won't name names, but everyone knows them. You know, there's something that you have to put in your holiday and there's something that you have to uh, do your happiness employee satisfaction survey. And there's something else that you need to use to set your goals and all this kind of stuff. And it's mandated yeah. from several layers above you. And you can tell that even your boss isn't that interested in using it. And it's kind of, they've been told to use it as much as you have. So there's, it lacks a champion. And I yeah. definitely think SAS fatigue, of which I'm going to trademark, uh, is, <laughs> is, yeah, a thing and like is a thing that could be a barrier to entry for like spinning up a new tool as a team for sure. But I think it's a bit of a red herring also, because when you think of a designer's toolkit, they, they're, creating logins left, right, and center in all the new tools. Like every time there's a new prototyping tool, they're plugging their email into it to give it a whirl. It's not just purely a numbers game. It's the amount of, it's the ROI. It's the amount of value that is added for the login. Yeah. So if you're having to remember a login and remember a new tool, just so that occasionally you can say that you want to go on holiday or you're being forced to log in by the company to answer a survey that you didn't really want to answer anyway, then that's that doesn't represent good ROI, and that's yeah. not an exciting thing for you to log into. Whereas logging in to create something amazing that might ship is really good, and that's why everyone probably has a Figma account, even if they're not actually using it, because it's free and you can just log in and use it. So, really, for me, I, the way I think about it is, if I'm creating enough value, then it shouldn't be an issue. But what it might mean is that the people that early adopt might look slightly different to I, I love the idea of you know if this product is something that really empowers individuals as designers to kind of like develop a clear picture of themselves you know is some some perspective and if they become kind of yeah. the, the the champion of using the product and not like hr or management if this is actually yeah. kind of designer centric in a way you know um i, I think that that actually becomes really appealing because if I think about, and this is, you know, some hot qualitative 
feedback from literally one person, me. Uh, but they're, they're like, <laughs> take. yeah, yeah. So there, but there are very few things that I actually care about now. You know, it, I remember coming along, there were companies that had all these perks where, you know, you'd like, you know, hit an intercom and you get like a massage at your desk or something weird like that, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and which I, I don't really want a massage at my desk, like in an open office plan, like it's just like, like a back massage. So it's, it's kind of, you know, I'd rather have like, there's all these kind of HR employee perks and this and that. And I'm like, I, I just would rather, you know, I love camaraderie. Like I love, you know, being social. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sound like a complete like Scrooge, but most of the time I want, my time and uh, I want to be able to do good work and I want, you know, an office space that's reasonably healthy. So that's not like detrimental to my health. And I also want to improve as a designer. Uh, And that's kind of it really. Uh, But, you know, so I think anything that helps me with those things, I'm I'm appreciative of, but anything else, it does seem a bit cumbersome. There's things that help you push your, your job or your, or, whatever you have to do forwards every day versus things that pull you back and kind of slow your progress. That's right. kind of an interesting way of thinking about it. Totally. You're, you're, I mean, you, you're championing your own development because that's something that, I mean, you, you know, the company wants you to be loyal to them because they gave you a back rub. Um, but I mean, actually when you work <laughs> for a company, it's, it's, tr- it's pretty transactional. You can really like the people who work there and you can really appreciate what the company does. But I mean, it's pretty transactional. Like what you get paid is the main factor in a lot of these, not always, but I mean, it is. And so, I mean, but your personal development is, is, I mean, you're investing in yourself and then by extension, improving the company, um, and not the other way around in a way. Uh, so which I think can inspire individuals to actually use this thing consistently. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a theory or that's kind of my, again, my perspective, but yeah, I think the challenge is that introspection is uncomfortable. <laughs> so yeah. it will feel, it will feel like pain. And okay. I think I've seen it feel like pain. Um, like you're sitting there so that this assessment that I've created, maybe I can improve it, but oh, well, most definitely I can improve it, but um, maybe I can shorten it but it takes people an hour and a half. <laughs> right. Um, it's not short. It, it takes that long to have a think about all the different aspects of you working out exactly where you, where the data comes from to decide whether you're at a certain level. And um, it forces you to think of, about yourself in ways that aren't, aren't comfortable because everyone really wants to just think of themselves as practically perfect in every way. Um, or actually the the alternative that I've also seen is some people finding it very hard to give themselves any credit at all. Hmm. Um, and it, it seems to be splitting in, in, you know, almost a spectrum of some people unwilling to recognize themselves on any level, even though not even knowing them, I know that they're doing themselves a, an injustice. It's, it's, ac- it's actually been really fascinating kind of on that note of self-assessment to see um, so I've taught, I guess, a few thousand students at General Assembly over the course of the last five years. Um, and, you know, in various formats. So some are one day, you know, short engagements, just a workshop. And then others are more long term where you get to know people. And, you know, 
you hear a lot about imposter syndrome. Uh, I, I, I suppose that the def- definition is where someone feels like an imposter in a particular field, like they have no value to add, but they're severely underestimating their own abilities and what they have to offer. Um, and sometimes I see people, you know, graduate from a one or two day, not graduate, but, you know, complete a, a, a fairly short course. And, you know, they'll move into the world. Some people under, like you said, dramatically underestimate their own abilities. Other people will dramatically overestimate their abilities and say like, well, I don't want to succumb to imposter syndrome. I was like, well, sometimes you (laughs) actually don't know stuff. (laughs) Like like sometimes you should actually feel like an imposter, you know, like sometimes that's a healthy, uh, perspective like you know it's i think if it's paralyzing if it's crippling to the point where you can't proceed or you can't continue to learn or you can't put yourself in situations you know to learn if it's if it's crippling uh kind of anxiety about your own abilities then that's not positive but sometimes it's good to be like actually there's a lot i don't know uh yeah so it's quite funny if you could be kind of the the moderator with that self-assessment you know because like you said it does seem to be not binary but I do, it, yeah, I've, I see that a lot, actually. Humans are complicated. Totally. And, and these are sometimes people who, you know, I think overestimate their own abilities. I don't think that they're cocky or, you know, otherwise. I don't think that they're otherwise cocky or overconfident human beings in all aspects of life. I think maybe they, like, listen to a TED Talk and they gave themselves kind of a pep talk and they're like, okay, I'm going to, you know, be an awesome designer. And actually, it's maybe not a bad strategy. A lot of them end up actually getting jobs above their pay grade right so it's it's actually like you kind of sometimes can't argue with the results even though you can argue with the well that's it yeah i mean it it pays to be a blagger right now it definitely does yeah and so i mean you it's a it's an interesting perspective but i mean i you know sometimes i just tell those people like you know i tell them all the things that i don't know so hopefully they're comfortable also feeling like Okay, I, I, Absolutely. I, I, there are things that I do know, and, and you can state those confidently, and then there are things that I don't know, and you should also be able to state those confidently. Um, yeah. And, uh, but that's, I think that's really hard, um, especially if you do feel like you're moving into a new career, or if you're trying to, if you, if you legitimately do feel like an imposter, like, I mean, I, it's, it's a messy one. I don't know. But, yes. but fascinating. Workplace, but, well, Assessment bias, I suppose, is is a thing. Yeah. Like, I suppose one of the other core tenets of what I'm interested in is the more uh, rigor and wording and definition you can wrap around these things, the less is left up to the opinion or the the natural biases of the hiring panel. Yeah. So when it comes to all the way to, to hiring. If you think about the kind of nose to tail experience or the life cycle experience of a designer or any employee moving into a company and then leaving at the other end, actually hiring is is the thing that sets the tone for everything else. And if you're being hired based on the fact that you're a charmer or you've managed to learn enough buzzwords to be able to ace an interview... Mm-hmm. then um, there's someone else that's losing out on that job who might, may well be better qualified than you. And right now, you know, meritocracy is meritocracy based on your interview technique and maybe it should just be meritocracy based on your actual skill set. <laughs> so, um, so actually, this is an interesting 
thought I've had. Um, I mean, we're, we're kind of acknowledging the pitfalls in the design industry. We're talking specifically about design. I mean, you could probably extend this discussion to a lot of other fields, but, you know, design as, you know, a, co- as a collective of people or an industry or whatever, it is fairly meritocratic in that you are expected to show your work because there are not a lot of, you know, aside from maybe your, you know, grades in university, there are tons of industries where it's, I mean, how do you measure other industries? I don't even know. Like, I, like, yeah. like yeah. because in, you know, for example, um, I mean, I guess there's a lot of, you know, sales, it's probably numbers. So that's probably fairly meritocratic. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are other ways that other industries do it, but I've always felt like design is fairly meritocratic, even though we feel, even though we see kind of how we see the discrepancies because we're in it. And I think it's good that we're trying yeah. to kind of close the gap, right? Like that's, that's good. Yeah. Um, even just, I mean, I think most people want a fair assessment of themselves uh, and, and they just don't have the framework to get it. Right. But, but how, yeah. how meritocratic do you think, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing the word properly, but how, how compared to other industries, where do you think design is at in that perspective? That's a good question. I think it's really hard to manage a fair hiring process well. Yeah. I think it's a full-time job. Like it depends how how what the hiring needs are of your company, but to be hiring in significant numbers um and and you know, if you're interviewing multiple candidates a week, yeah. That's a huge overhead. And to make sure that all of those interviews are fair and that the interview panels are asking the right questions and that there's no bias sneaking in from any of the many windows and doors that could exist in that process yep. um, is, is very hard. It's really, it's, and it's very human and it's very hard to recognize when bias is creeping in. Um, and it's very easy to fall back on either we're going to hire more people like the people that are the best at the company, which is a form of bias, or we're going to hire more people who we would want to go to the pub with, or, you know, there's all sorts of things that can very much dress up as good yeah. that aren't and there isn't also really much agreement around kind of a quality interview process and I suppose bear in mind big companies probably have worked this out they have the data yeah. and they have the people around to really hone over a meaningful period of time and over many data points what good hiring looks like and then they can watch the data you know they can watch the the these hires move through the company and they can work out who who worked out and who didn't um yeah and you know diversity numbers aren't good even in big companies but in small companies it is really just it's a personality contest so totally there's the for sure there's a there's a there's a bar which is you know you have to your work has to be of a reasonable standard yeah but um also you know when you're when you're bringing in projects that you worked on with other people then it all of that blurs, starts to blur anyway. No, that makes sense. And I, I mean, I think, you know, because a cultural fit is important, I guess. Uh, so it is tough as well because, I mean, you know, how important is that? And it probably depends on the business that you're in and kind of what you're trying to do and how big the team is. Uh, you know, if you if you have, for example, a 
three-person startup, it, it might be important that you get on at a personal level or, you know, maybe not, I don't know, versus a right. you know, massive company where you imagine people can actually find like-minded individuals somewhere in this max, massive ecosystem. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I have always thought that there should be some sort of Hippocratic oath that we take as designers. You know, we really like, promise to do good. And, um, you know, because there's no moment, you know, when you become a doctor or something where you're like, I, you know, I basically promise to use these skills for good uh, and, yeah. in so many words. And I thought, I think it'd be really, you know, really interesting to see what that would look like as a designer. You know, like, you know, it, once you start building in, you know, you start thinking about the hiring process and the, the accreditation process as designers, like, because we all just kind of, a lot of designers just, were slightly more creative or technical than their peers. And so they could like build websites when they were 16 and then right. like, you right. know, then they just started making stuff. And I wouldn't want to change that spontaneity too much, but it would be interesting to do what you're doing well to create some, some frameworks. Um, but also I, it'd be really fascinating to see like, yeah, how do you make the hiring process based on merit? How do you, create some sort of kind of tacit agreement between designers that we want to make stuff that like has a positive impact on the world, which I mean, I guess, you know, like, are we okay with designing, uh, like what are the ethics in designing maximum security prisons? Like, I don't know, like from an architecture standpoint, like I, I, I imagine someone's thought about this, but, uh, but anyways, that's a, a talking about accreditation and, uh, even regulation of, kind of uh the design industry is a conversation we should definitely get into well i mean uh, it's one i've had with various other people that of late and it is super interesting um we should really go at it one episode we totally i mean i would yeah let's let's uh let's put that kind of on the on the list because i think that's fascinating i think if we don't create the standards for this um someone yeah. else is because people are starting yeah. to realize the effects that you know, these digital products like Facebook have on, you know, globally and on populations and people and individuals. And I think if we don't create this kind of, uh, these standards, I mean, you don't want it to turn into this crusty old industry because it's such a beautiful dynamic space, but you are like, well, if we don't create some kind of agreements, you know, you're, it's going to get to the point where we actually lose control of the process and, and people outside the design industry, like governments start creating all the regulations for us, Completely. you know, and you're like, Oh, Completely. well that, you know, that, and that's not going to be great. That's, that's not fun for anyone. No, but anyways, but that is a really awesome topic for another day. Um, so Austin, what have you got up next? I'm currently in the States, uh, for another week working and then I'm flying to Saudi Arabia, uh, designing and delivering a, an education program for, um, the MISC Foundation over in Riyadh. So it'll be my first time in the Middle East. Um, should be super fun. So next time we talk, uh, you can tell me about India and I'll tell you about Riyadh. Awesome. Thanks so much, Austin. All right, man. Talk to you soon. Speak soon. All right. Bye. bye.